Michael DeLeon, a successfully acclimated ex-offender who after nearly eight years of drug addiction and gang involvement spent 12 years in state prison and halfway houses for a gang-related homicide. Do I have your attention? However, this is not where his story ended. His story is going to inspire you. It is going to motivate you and it is going to challenge you. We all know someone who has been affected by drug abuse or violence. You are definitely going to want to share Michael's story with everyone. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Grant. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Grant. Since Michael's release from prison, he has earned three associate's degrees, a baccalaureate degree in business management, with a minor in criminal justice, and a CADC educational certificate. Michael is now in the process of obtaining his master's degree in addictions counseling at Liberty University, as well as pursuing his LCADC. Wow. <laughs> Welcome, yeah. Michael. Thank you so much for having me. As I read your story, Michael, I just kind of took a breather because there is so much there and I had to stop. And first of all, be thankful that you have come as far as you have and have willing to share your story with audiences all over. I am so impressed by how you not only have turned your life around, but what you are doing to help others. You are definitely one of a kind. And I thank you for taking out the time in your extremely busy schedule to be on Never Ever Give Up Hope. So let's start with your backstory. How in the world did you end up in prison? Well, thank you again for having me. Uh, you know, never ever give up hope. I, when I was contacted and asked about it, I love the name. And uh, I guess never giving up hope. Sometimes you don't even know you're not giving up hope. You're holding on to hope. And I've held on to hope for so long before I even realized it was hope, you know. My life changed at the end of fifth grade. Um, my family had emigrated to America from Ireland. I was the happiest little kid in the world. I was in the fifth grade, straight A student, and my parents got divorced. It was, you know, I say that 
2021, kids look at me like, so what? Every kid's parents are divorced because 60% of American marriages end in divorce. But anyone that's my age that grew up in the 70s remembers parents didn't get divorced like that back then. I was devastated and I went from straight A's to D's and F's and never gotten in trouble in elementary school and I was getting suspended from school for all sorts of reasons. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I wouldn't talk to my coach, my counselors, no one. And uh, the principal told my mother that I needed to get some counseling. So she took me to our Catholic priest who uh, was in charge of us altar boys for some in-depth one-on-one counseling. And he sexually molested me sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And uh, that was the beginning of the trauma I experienced as a kid. A, a friend of mine um, told me the way to deal with my stress was just to smoke a cigarette. Just He gave me a pack of cigarettes. He was three years older than me. He just said, here, man, it'll calm your nerves. And I started smoking cigarettes at the age of 11. And uh, people don't realize the origin of addiction because within two weeks hanging out with him and his friends, now my circle of friends have changed and I'm drinking alcohol at 11. And within a couple of weeks from that, I'm smoking marijuana. Age 11, nicotine, alcohol, and marijuana. And, you know, if you grew up in the 70s, that doesn't seem like such a severe contributing factor. If you look at my whole story, very few people would say, oh, it's because at age 11, you started smoking cigarettes. But in reality, that's exactly what started it all. Nicotine, which is a stimulant, alcohol, which is a depressant, and marijuana, THC, which is a hallucinogen. And I was on pills by 15, cocaine at 16, heroin at 17, meth at 18, a full-blown life of addiction until it all came to a screeching halt in 1995 when I ended up going to prison for five years uh, first, came home for 10 months and went right back to prison again for seven more years. So it was a 12-year total experience of prison after a um, basically 17-year run of full-blown addiction, 11 to 28. Did you have an aha moment in prison? So I did not have an aha moment the first prison sentence. So I did two prison sentences. As I said, they were part of the same case. The second case had additional uh, cases and charges with it because I went back on drugs. But the aha moment came in the second prison sentence, you know, sitting there in prison facing, you know, up to 20 years ahead of me, didn't know how long I was going to do the second time, um, not realizing, not realizing the first time I went to prison, I needed to change the way I think. I needed to change the way I feel. I needed to change how I looked at myself, looked in the mirror, looked at the world. And uh, I didn't change anything the first time. The aha moment came, the second sentence, when I realized I should have never went to prison because um, I deserve to go to prison. I mean, my life of addiction, 17 to 18 years, led to prison. But 
you know, I, I, that's not what my destiny was. I shouldn't have traveled that path, but I did. But now I'm back in prison. How did I end up back in prison? And that aha moment was when I realized I didn't change anything. It was a couple of key books, the Bible being most important, you know, developing a real spiritual principle um, with God. But two books that really um, got me to open my eyes One was by Les Brown, one of the greatest motivational speakers ever to live, um, on goals, and I realized that I never really had any. And a second book by one of the most brilliant authors, brilliant motivational speakers in the world, Jack Canfield, who wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. He wrote a book called Success Principles. And it's a business book, 66 Success Principles to Become Successful in Your Life. The book was in the library. It was uh, pristine because not too many people wanted to pick it up and read it and change their life, I guess, in prison. But I picked it up and took it back to my cell and I started reading it. And chapter four, um, the fourth success principles, uh, I'm sorry, the first success principle, chapter four, success principle was take 100% responsibility for your life. And I realized that I had never taken 100% responsibility for anything in my life, much less my life. Taking 100% responsibility for your choices, for your decisions, good or bad, take 100% responsibility for your success. Um, You know, obviously point to other people, give credit where credit is due. I didn't get to be where I am today without my wife, without our staff, without support from amazing people that have, you know, supported me. Foundation for a drug-free world, the number one uh, educational series of educational booklets in the world in over 30 languages. They did a documentary on me called uh, Voices for Humanity. And the people that have helped me since I got out of prison in 2007 uh, were very instrumental. But, you know, I'm going to take 100% responsibility for my success, but I also take 100% responsibility for my mistakes. So that was my aha moment. And the aha moment led to the foundational principle uh, that I share because now I go back into prisons to teach men and women how to change the way they think is find your purpose. And that aha moment led led me to, to my purpose in life, which is educating kids and families across the country so we can stop this crazy addiction pandemic in our country. Before we move forward, I just want to back up a little bit because you said something that is key here. And that is taking 100% responsibility for your choices, for your actions, etc. One of the things that I have noticed, which is a common thread when I interview anybody on this show who has a similar story to your own, this is what made the change in their life. And that is taking responsibility. And I assume, now I'm jumping forward a little bit here too, and I know you're going to talk about what you are sharing with high school students and young people across the country, is I assume that this is what you, one of the messages, one of the key messages that you share. However, before we go there, I just want to ask you what you were charged with that landed you in prison. Okay. So in uh, 1995, uh, my addiction had spiraled out of control. I was living in uh, 
an urban community in New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, and I was involved in a gang. I was dealing drugs, uh, dealing guns, committing crime, everything that you can imagine uh, involved in the you know drug addiction um, gang involvement I was involved with. And uh, I had put a, a very large drug deal together um, that went horribly wrong. And uh, some people got shot and some drugs and money went missing. So there was a hit put out on me. Uh, I was, I was um, you know, marked for death. The person in charge of the gang that I was involved in actually wanted me killed. He wanted me brought to him and he was going to put a bullet in my head. So he sent two people to find me. And um, I wasn't home when they came to look at me. I had moved in with my 63-year-old mother because my wife had taken off and said she'd had enough, took the kids and left. So I moved in with my 63-year-old mother. She just retired as a nurse. And they came looking for me, these two kids, and I wasn't there. And they bashed the door in and they strangled and murdered my mother. May 13th, 1995, which ironically was Mother's Day morning. Oh, my God. I came home that morning at 7.20 a.m. to find my mother strangled and murdered on our bedroom floor, her bedroom floor. Now, I didn't know she was strangled and murdered. I called 911. The 911 dispatcher is telling me how to give CPR to an unresponsive person. The police and the paramedics were there within three minutes staring at me, kneeling over my mother, talking to the dispatcher in the phone, crying and screaming, giving her CPR. And the police sergeant pulled me off my mother and uh, told me she was gone. And it started to dawn on me that she'd been gone for hours. Rigor mortis had set in. She was blue and cold and stiff. And my mother was gone. And I was in a drug delusion trying to bring her back from the dead with CPR. Now, we asked for an autopsy because, you know, my mother was healthy, 63, not a medical problem in her life. How could she just die? And the autopsy revealed asphyxiation. She was strangled to death. And then everything changed. The prosecutors show up, the detectives, the crime scene team. And it's 10 hours uh, later after we find her, there's 50 people in the house who've brought over casseroles because when someone dies suddenly, that's what people do. Family and friends gather and you start figuring out what you're going to do. You make arrangements, make an appointment with the funeral home. But all of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, and law enforcement's there to investigate a homicide. And within uh, probably an hour, the two detectives, the two pathetic, pitiful detectives that took me down to the police station for questioning, that were taking my statements and, you know, listening to me about my gang involvement and why this probably happened and what happened. And they focused on me. They found drugs. They found needle marks all up on my arms and my neck. They found paraphernalia in my room, in my car. They just imagined that the junkie must have done it. The drug addict must have done it. And they built a case They had three judges, three judges, turn down arrest warrants because there's no probable cause. There's just this imaginary story. There's not even circumstantial evidence. Three judges turned this 
detective down for an arrest warrant to arrest me for the first degree murder of my very own mother. Um, so they did what they always do in an event where they can't get a judge to agree. They impaneled something called the grand jury and the grand jury indicted me. 10 citizens impaneled heard a story from three people, the medical examiner, the detective with the idea, and the cop that was first on the scene. Three people testified before 10 citizens, and the grand jury returned a sealed indictment uh, charging me with the first-degree murder of my own mom. So I was arrested and charged with a crime I did not commit. But when I share my story, when I teach across the country, every time I tell people what happened to me, I say the same thing. I'm 100% responsible for my mom's death. She's dead because of me. They came looking for me, and they killed her. She's gone because of me. I'll go to my grave accepting 100% responsibility, but I didn't do it. But yet I was lodged in the county jail on a million-dollar cash bail for 22 months. And in the middle of jury selection, the prosecutor wanted to give me a stipulated polygraph exam, which my attorney refused. He gave me a lolly detector test. I passed it. He gave me a second one. I passed it. He let me take the state's stipulated polygraph exam, and I passed it. Three lie detector tests proved my innocence. And one week, still housed in the Morris County Correctional Facility in Morris County, New Jersey, the state refused to drop the charge. They refused to drop the charge. They, it was two years after my mom's death, almost 22 months. What's going to happen now? Are they, how are they going to investigate this case? So they were convinced on the state level that I must be some pathological liar and that I'm just so good at beating polygraph exams. So they offered my attorney a deal he could not refuse and who he convinced me to take it. The deal was five years for first-degree murder. Now, the minimum you can do in prison for a first-degree murder in New Jersey was 30 years. That's the minimum, 30 years. This was an unheard of illegal sentence. The prosecutor just wanted this case to go away. The state of New Jersey wanted this case to go away. They were convinced that I was some sort of freak, that I just beat polygraph exams instead of passing them. And they offered me an unheard of deal. Now, I had 22 months already served. So I was literally going to be released in 38 months, guaranteed. But I was going to be in a halfway house in six months. My attorney convinced me to take responsibility and go ahead and take the deal. And I thought I was making the worst decision of my life. I never thought I was going to have a life. But I didn't want to die in prison for something I didn't do. For if I was convicted in a jury trial with nobody to point to and this crazy gang story that I had no way to substantiate, was I going to testify if I went to trial? So I stood up and took responsibility for my mother's death. And um, I went to prison for three additional years, 38 more months. I was in a halfway house in six months, just like the lawyer said. And uh, I had five years probation tacked on 
and I was released after five years for the first degree aggravated manslaughter of my very own mother. And 10 months home from prison, I was back on drugs again, back on opioid medication after a car accident, back on heroin and meth, and they violated my probation and they sent me back to prison where I served seven additional years. So I took a five-year gift and unfortunately turned it into a 12-year nightmare. And I went back to prison for seven more years. It was that return to prison that changed the direction of my life. I realized God actually saved me. He saved me uh, because I would have died on drugs if I didn't go back to prison. But I found my purpose. I took that pain and I turned it into purpose. And I realized that I was going to have to spend the rest of my life educating children about where it all began. And that's exactly what I'm doing I've now become the number one booked school presenter in the entire country. I'm not usually speechless, but I don't even know what to say, Michael. That is, there's no words. It's more than phenomenal. And there's so many things that I could ask you. There's so many directions that we could take. But what I want to do now is to focus on the other side, on the upside of this story. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. And you don't want to miss what else Michael has to share. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. Amazing story. That's not even an uh, appropriate word to use, but I thank you so much for sharing that. And even I could sense your pain regarding what you had experienced about your mom. I am so touched and so appreciate what you are doing. And that's what we are going to talk about now, what you are doing to help young people, to help students. You have spoken to over 10 million students and young adults to motivate them as they need motivation and I don't I am sure that you will agree with me there and you've spoken in many facilities delivering evidence-based student programs this is so exciting all around the country and you've presented this in centers and schools in all 50 states one thing that you said a quote that I'd like to refresh the audience now is that for most of my life since age 11 I was part of the problem in my own life I was the problem after 12 years in prison I wanted to be the solution so I dedicated my life to this purpose so talk to us about 
your program? Well, you know, you obviously can't change the past. I can't change what happened to me. I can't take the pain away from my family. My brother and sister have been estranged from me since this happened, never to have talked to me again. I think there's nine or 10 nieces and nephews I've never met or seen. You know, the pain my wife endured being without a husband for 12 years, my kids were, they were, you know, raised, they grew up without me in their life. And obviously my mom, you know, uh, her murder was my fault. It was all preventable. So I can't change the past, uh, you know, and it's such a cliche, you know, look, look ahead, live your life forward. Epictetus is a great philosopher. I read a lot about in prison and he says, um, life, you know, you, we live our lives forward, but we own it understand our lives backwards. So there's a reason why the windshield is so big and the rear view mirror is small. You shouldn't, you know, drive with your eyes focused on the rear view mirror, or the side view mirror. So you got to look ahead in that windshield. And so many of these, you know, affirmations and analogies and, you know, uh, pictures came to me. So many of the mentors that I was reading that second prison sentence, I, I read so much, um, Take 100% responsibility for your life changed everything. And I realized that I, since I can't change the past, I need to look at why it happened. I need to um, take this, become a live cautionary tale for kids. I love uh, what Laura Bush said. Um, kids are 25% of our population but they are 100% of our future. And so if I'm going to, obviously I'm never going to make up for what happened. I'm never going to reverse what happened, but I got to live my life forward, trying to be the best husband, best example, and try to get kids not to follow in my footsteps. But it wasn't easy. I got out of prison and I started calling some principals and superintendents and I'd be like, good morning. I just got out of prison. I'd like to come talk to your children. I got a dial tone. You know, they hung up. <laughs> they hung up on me. And I was like, he hung up on me. And my wife said, well, we'll call another one. Good morning. I just got out of prison. I'd like to come talk to your children. Hello? Hello? <laughs> who would want the ex-convict to come talk to kids? But who better to talk to kids? Exactly. Honestly, I can. I, I don't sugarcoat it. Um, I openly talk about my sexual abuse as a kid, my physical abuse all through high school. I didn't mention that earlier, but my two uncles beat me half to death all four years of high school. So I would man up and not be, uh, you know, changed by the molestation of a man and they grow up to be what they wouldn't have tolerated. So they beat me half to death uh, all throughout high school. I never dealt with that trauma. I, when I got out of prison, I didn't take no for an answer. I, I got hung up on hundreds of times. I got no as an answer hundreds of times, but I never, ever, ever gave up. I never gave up. And um, I just kept going. And I said, if it's God's purpose for me, and I believed it was, no way was he going to release me from prison after failing miserably again without a, a purpose. And I believed this was my purpose. And the doors started opening up. I started going to speak in schools, urban communities where I was the only white person in the entire building. And 
African-American principals coming up to me saying, I've never seen anything like that in my life. These kids don't sit silent and for anything. You could have heard a pin drop. I mean, I've had 12,000 uh, students in uh, arenas um, silent. It's a horrible story. 25 to 30% of the kids that line up to talk to me after a presentation line up to talk to me about their sexual abuse and their drug use and how they don't see a way out and how they don't have hope. They say, but I relate to you. And if you can make it, I can do it. If you've given me hope. I had a girl come up to me two years ago saying that the only reason she came to school that day was to say goodbye to her friends. She was saying to goodbye to them in secret because she was going to take her life that night. And she says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, I had another girl who came back after a suicide attempt. Um, and that was her first day back in school. And she said to me, I sat here all morning trying to figure out a better way to do it. I was going to do it right this time, but you changed my mind. I've had kids hand me drugs. I've had kids hand me pills. I've had kids hand me their vape. I've had kids hand me, literally hand me hypodermic needles. Then I've had kids ask me to help them with their mom, who's a drug addict, or their father, who's an alcoholic, uh, or their friend, you know, come up crying. Could you talk to my friend? He's in another school and I'm worried for him. And then I've had teachers come up to me after presentations asking me how to help with their own children because they don't know what to do. And so I, I really believe it's my purpose. I've never give up, given up hope. Uh, my life isn't perfect. Um, I'm 18 years without drugs or alcohol in my body, but it, it's a struggle. Uh, it's a struggle to fund this. We're a nonprofit organization. So I used to beg, borrow and steal in my addiction. Now I just beg and borrow, uh, to try to get the money that we need to move forward. But COVID changed everything. It hurt. And now drug addiction's higher than it's ever been in our country's history. Suicide is up more than it's ever been across our country's history. Self-harm and fentanyl is pouring into our country through, through our southern border. So I'm trying to educate people about how we solve this problem. And I believe we solve this problem with our kids. The only way to stop addiction from continuing is to stop it from starting in the first place. So I'm going to do everything in my power to stop it from starting with as many kids as possible. So they grow up to be who they're supposed to be, not following my footsteps. So I so appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about it and get the message out to even more people. So what is the message when you are sharing like in the group situation, how are you challenging them? How are you motivating them to change? You know, uh, finding your purpose seems like such a mature concept, but I have found that most people that I've talked to, interviewed, I've interviewed 10,000 people who have been touched by addiction, incarceration, either addicted themselves or lost a sibling or lost a child or been incarcerated or had a child or sibling incarcerated. 10,000 people I've interviewed uh, since 2007. The number one thing I have found that has turned an 
uh, addict around and alcoholic around is purpose, sense of purpose. Spiritual principles is a thread through that fabric, but finding a purpose for your life. And when I talk to them, they always say the same thing. 99.9% of them always say the same thing. I wish I found my purpose when I was a kid. You know, and I and it was there. They they tell me about something that happened. Uh, hindsight, I I realize that my, that I knew what my purpose was when I was ten, when I was eleven, when I was fifteen. But I never sought it. I never went after it. I never believed in myself. I didn't have the hope, or I didn't have the mentors, or I didn't have the guidance. Finding your purpose. I don't believe it's something that we find in our fifties and our sixties. I believe it's something we can find when we're in middle school. And so I think that's the most important message I deliver to kids. I mean, sure, I'm going in there educating them about vaping products and marijuana and alcohol and pills and opioids. Yes, I'm educating them about drugs. Foundation for a Drug-Free World has educational materials that I hand out all over this country in over 30 different languages. It's continuing education that I leave with every student, or I leave information from the National Institute on Drug Abuse or National Institute of Health or the DEA. So many continuing education materials. We developed curriculums of our own, but when I'm in front of them, when I'm going to impact the audience, impact the group, I've got to hit them hard. And I think the number one message I deliver to kids is find your purpose and find it early in your life. Have you ever had any kids come back months or years later? Oh, absolutely. Literally, when I say this, I'm not, it's not me. I give all credit and glory to God, honestly. It's uh, hundreds of kids, hundreds of kids. Uh, I just, about uh, three months ago, had a, a girl from Maine. Um, she saw me at a um, center, an adolescent drug treatment program she was at in New Hampshire. And uh, she said, um, I don't know if you remember me. I contacted you when I got out of my treatment center, thanking you for coming to my program. You were the best speaker when I was there for six months and you impacted my life. And I do remember her. I remembered her. She contacted me on social media. But this past spring, she uh, sent me this um, card and uh, inside it was a picture of her holding her diploma in uh, social work, her bachelor's hey. degree in social work. <laughs> and uh, she sent me a card. It was addressed to Steered Straight. Inside, it was, um, it made me cry for, I don't know, I, I still cry even talking about it. Uh, she says, I owe this degree to you. You changed the direction of my life. And now I'm going to go out and have a ripple effect on kids for the rest of my life because of you. I owe it all to you. And so we wrote her back and I said, well, I'll take a little bit of the credit, but you don't owe it all to me. You owe it all to you. You're the one who did it and made the choice and made the decision to turn your entire life around. Um, but I've had other kids become counselors. Uh, I actually had a school counselor bring me in right before COVID. It was February of 2020. She was she had just become a counselor, and I had uh, came to her school when she was a freshman. Um, and she stopped smoking weed and drinking as a freshman. And she went on to become a counselor. And then she got to introduce me as the counselor who impacted her when she was a freshman in high school. It was just beautiful. It was awesome. So, but yeah, I've had, and, and unfortunately I've had to testify, uh, so far I've testified 
uh, for 30 different trials of a kid who came up to me after a presentation to report sexual abuse that nobody knew was going on. And, and people actually went to prison because their kid came forward after a presentation in a school and I was able to convince them to sit down with the counselor and the counselor brings protective services in and law enforcement in and incest and molestation that's happening that no one knew about actually comes to light because I had the courage to get up and tell my story. So it's, I, that's how I know it's the purpose for my life. I know you've heard this probably many times and I don't want it to sound like a cliche, but I know that you are one of those people who will say, if this had not happened to me, I would not be where I am today. And your life, eliminate all those years where there was so much hurt and pain and devastation. You would not be who you are now and would not be able to help people on the scale that you helped them if you had not gone through those years. And I know that you definitely agree with me, even though there is pain and everything else involved. I have a great story that really addresses that. You know, um, after the presentation, I have a Q&A session 90% of the time. Sometimes schools don't give me the extra time, but we do Q&A with the kids. And it was a uh, it was a girl. She was a junior in Crawfordsville, Indiana. It's always a girl because girls are smarter than boys. You know, girls ask better questions, but <laughs> um, women are smarter than men. If every man in America would learn that early on in their life, they'd have a much better life. But this girl asks me this question. She raises her hand and she said, if you could go back to when that kid gave you that cigarette and say no instead of saying yes – uh, would you do it? And I said, I get that question all the time. It's a great question. And I have two answers for you. I would say no, because of, of, you know, what happened, who I hurt, my mother's death, my wife being without her husband, all those years, my kids growing up without their father, the, the amount of people that I hurt dealing drugs and dealing guns and the things that I did, the amount of people that I hurt, I would say I would go back and say no to that kid and I would not smoke cigarette and my life would have changed forever. But I would still have to say yes, because it's made me who I am today. And I went on to the next question and she didn't like that answer. Every other kid that asked a question got a definitive answer, a yes or a no, or I, I answered their question definitively. But this girl got two answers and she wasn't going to accept that. So after all the kids that wanted to ask me questions personally, that didn't want to ask them out loud, after all the kids that were confiding in me about what they were going through and what have you, she comes up to me. She's the last kid in the auditorium, the, the counselor standing there, the principal standing there. And so she says, um, you know, every other kid asked you a question and you gave them a straightforward answer. But me, you gave two. And I don't want two. I want one. I want to know. If you could say no to that cigarette and change your life forever, I want to know if you go back and say no. Or would you still say yes? And I said, I totally understand what you're saying, but I still have two answers. I would go back and say no because of who I hurt, the damage I did to other people. But I would still say yes because it's made me who I am today. And she looked at me. She looked at me. She actually pointed her finger in my face and she said, but how do you know who you would have been? And I was floored. I get goosebumps. Mm. My arm hair, my arm hairs are standing up on my arm right now. Every single time I tell this story, I get goosebumps and my hair stands up. She said, how do you know who you would have been? 
And she's right. I was speechless. I was floored. And from that day forward, I never, ever, ever answered that question two ways. I always say I would go back and say no. I would go back and say no to that cigarette, no to drugs. I wish I could go back and change. But because of what happened to me, now I can be the value to the lives of other people. So many people talk about what you could do for humanity, or I think the most important thing you could do, uh, I think the most important thing in the world today is others. I mean, that's the most important. What's the most important thing in the world? Others. You know, What can I do for other people? What can I do for kids? I have to change the world. And the world is changed not by, you know, millions of people. The world is changed by a single person in a grassroots way making a difference in the world. You know, you want to change the world, look in the mirror. Sometimes people pray and they say, God, what are you going to do about this? Why can't you change this? You know, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why didn't you do anything to stop this? And God always says, I did. I created you. I created you. What are you doing? I watch these people on social media all the time. Somebody should do something about this. I hate when people say that. Yes. Somebody should do something about this. Well, aren't you somebody? Somebody should. How about you? What are you doing? You know, these people um, that want to virtue signal and, you know, take a knee. I served in the military briefly uh, so people can take a knee at the national anthem. If you want to burn the American flag, I'm totally against it. But I fought for this country so you could have that right. Go burn the Chinese flag in China. See what happens to you. Burn the Russian flag. Burn the Cuban flag. Burn the Iranian flag. See what happens to you. But but if, if you're outraged at what's happening, what are you doing about it? If you're outraged about suicide, if you're outraged about drug addiction, great. But what are you doing with that outrage? I spend every waking moment and sometimes my sleeping moments, I literally wake up out of a sleep with a thought and I put it on paper. I wake up and I call somebody, you know, if it's not 3 a.m. where they are. Every moment of my life, I want to spend the rest of it showing people that there is hope. There's nothing you can't come back from. My story is horrible. I'm responsible for the murder of my mother. And I stood up in court to get a five-year sentence saying that I'm the one who actually did it so I could get that sentence. So some people out there won't believe my story the way I'm telling it. I have haters. They'll look at the New York Times article where I pled guilty and said I did it. And that's the end of their conclusion. I can't worry about it. I have people that are hating on me. I have people that kick my back in. I I, I can't worry about it. All I got to do with the rest of my life is fulfill my purpose. And I believe my purpose is to make sure kids grow up to be who God destined them to be, who their parents and teachers and guardians are raising them to be, that they don't become me. I don't want them to you know, become incarcerated and uh, use drugs and, God forbid, lose their life at a young age. We just went to a funeral about two weeks ago for a 16-year-old kid. Uh, every protective factor you could have as a kid, uh, star of his sports team, straight-A student, uh, beautiful parents, healthy family, and uh, he got a Xanax pill 
off a social media site, Snapchat. But it wasn't Xanax. It was fentanyl. He got a pill he thought was a Xanax pill. It was fentanyl that's counterfeit produced by Mexican and South American cartels imported from China with raw materials. Parents had no idea that he was even looking for a Xanax pill. He didn't think it was fentanyl. Um, now he's gone. A 16-year-old kid tragically dead. Other 16, 15, uh, a 13 year old boy, uh, dead from respiratory disease, uh, at, at, at 13 from vaping, smoking marijuana, dabbing marijuana. It's real what's happening. So I'm going to educate kids, educate educators, educate parents and guardians and try to make a difference in the world. Never give up hope and never give up on my purpose. And you are making a difference. And that's the bottom line. And I thank you. We're running out of time. As we talked before the show, this could easily turn into a whole series. And I thank you so much for what you have shared today. But before we go, I do want you to talk a little bit about your memoir. Well, so my story um, is called Chasing Ruin, R-U-I-N, Chasing Ruin, Finding Redemption. I found redemption uh, on my path to um, destruction. Uh, and I was chasing that destruction, unbeknownst to me, uh, you know, volunteering for the, uh, the, the destruction, if you will. So chasing ruin, finding redemption. And uh, it's, it's um, done, but it's not getting published until uh, the spring because the rights to the book have been purchased and they're actually in the process of putting a movie together. Someone wrote the screenplay. The screenplay got bought and uh, they're actually um, casting and doing some film work. I'm going to LA this weekend and next weekend to actually be involved in the film. It's crazy. So it'll be out next (laughs) Yeah, it'll be out next year. I produced um, four documentary movies on addiction and recovery, and they're all on my website. Oh, great. But my website, steeredstraight.org, is uh, where everything is located, steeredstraight.org. People can get the book, the parents' book that we published, all the documentary films, and um, read read an in-depth explanation of my story to share with other people. And what would you like to say in conclusion? Purpose is the reason that we journey, and passion is the fire that lights the way. Teaching kids to find their purpose, if it is their purpose, they'll find passion for it. I love when people say, if you love what you do, like for a job, you'll never work a day in your life. And it's the same concept. If you find passion for something, generally your purpose is intertwined in that. So it's easier to find your purpose because if you find passion for it, that becomes your purpose. We have to teach kids to find the purpose of their life. Mm. The only way to stop the the war on drugs is to stop is to turn it into a war on addiction and the only way uh to stop that war on addiction is to stop it with kids we need to stop this addiction before it starts we've got to get to the kids contact your school district uh wherever you are listening from and ask them to bring steered straight into their school district into their school okay i'll go any i'll go anywhere to speak to an audience um, anywhere. If I can make a difference in the world, it's fulfilling my purpose and I definitely have a passion for it. So I'd like to help anyone and everyone that I can be, become the best person that they can become and avoid, you know, the path that I 
fell into. So I thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining yeah, us today it. for sharing your story. This is a story that you probably are going to want to listen to more than once. And it's not just listening to it, but taking it and doing something with it, passing it to leaders in your community, etc., so that we can join you in this mission. We want to join oh, you yeah. in this mission. And it's. I appreciate it also what you said, that you are passionate about it. And there are many people who are passionate, and we could all join forces together as those people who are passionate to change not just their world, but to change the world of the kids around them. This is key, and I so appreciate what you have shared today. Thank you so much for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. All right. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.